Hey, good evening, everybody. I'm Pastor Eric. Let's stand up together. We're going to lift up our voices, sing out to God be the glory. Let's praise him together. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved to the world that he gave us his son. Who yielded his life and atonement for sin. And Lord, let the people 
Good evening and welcome uh, to our midweek time of prayer and Bible study. I am Pastor Seth and I'm thankful that you've taken time to come and be here in person as well as those that are joining us online or maybe be watching or listening later on. And I want to go to the Lord in prayer and then we're going to get into Hosea chapter 5 tonight in our continued Bible study in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing of another day, for health and strength uh, to be able to come together as your people, uh, to worship, uh, to uh, sing praises to your name, and to hear from your word. You are faithful and always gracious and merciful to us, and for that we say thank you. And we ask you, Lord, that you would forgive us where we have failed you, our sins and wrongdoing, that uh, there would be nothing that would quench or grieve the Holy Spirit in our lives, but that uh, we would have a strong, uh, healthy relationship with you uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for the needs represented in our church family. Uh, some that are dealing with uh, health concerns and others are dealing with family uh, challenges and financial issues and job concerns and all the things that come our way. Uh, Lord, thank you that we're never alone and that you always know what we need even before we need it. Uh, Father, as we have looked together at this uh, word from Hosea, we've been reminded of uh, the, really the destructive nature of sin and uh, what it can do in our relationship with you and also our effectiveness in our service to you. And I thank you for this inspired word and ask that uh, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher uh, these next few minutes, uh, that we would be able to continue to apply uh, these truths to our lives, uh, that we would understand uh, what it means to have a vibrant relationship with you and to earnestly seek you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The message tonight is entitled, Earnestly Seek God. And we're going to look at all of Hosea chapter 5. There are 15 verses here. We've been studying the life and the ministry of Hosea, whose name means salvation. Uh, this is a study of a rebellious people, uh, God's relentless love for those rebellious people, and God's call for the people to repent and to come back to him. Hosea ministered and uh, spoke words from the Lord for a period of time of about 40 years to the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a time that was filled with idolatry, uh, repeated spiritual failures, and moral corruption to the very core. God's love shines through the darkness of all of that idolatry and spiritual failure and moral corruption. And the message is, yes, about judgment, but it's also a very strong message about hope. We looked at the symbolism of the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, which is symbolic of the relationship that God has with his people. God as the faithful husband 
and his people as the unfaithful bride. God rebuked the people for what they did and called them to repent and to turn back to him. We also focused on the message that God is offended by the unfaithfulness of his people, that it breaks his heart, that he is a jealous God, and that Israel was unfaithful, but God remained faithful through it all. And all of this has overtones of the promised Messiah who would come as the deliverer. Uh, Jesus Christ was the only one who could keep the law perfectly, and he's the only one who could observe the covenant and uh, fulfill the will of God. So in that regard, uh, he is the bridegroom, and we are the bride as his church. We look to him in faith for our redemption, and we long for his return, knowing that that will be the uh, full bringing together of the eternal plan of God. As we focused last week on chapter 4 in Hosea, the emphasis is on how the people rejected truth and mercy and the knowledge of God. And in that, it led to depravity. Truth is that which relates or corresponds to reality. Uh, mercy is the compassionate treatment of others. It's seeing people in their circumstances, but having mercy toward them, just as God has mercy toward us. And it's the knowledge of God that brings us into the light and brings us to a place of wisdom so that we can apply the knowledge that he gives us. Then we saw how when people reject truth and mercy and the knowledge of God, it leads to natural consequences or damage in the world. The human sinful condition even affects uh, the natural world, the creation of God that groans and cries out for renewal, as the book of Romans puts it. And then finally, when people reject truth and mercy and the knowledge of God, it leads to destruction. We focused on how the world system is uh, something that lures people in. It makes people think that there's a payoff that is good for them. And then as a result of it, they end up being destroyed because of their lack of knowledge and judgment comes. So we pick up reading in Hosea chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, the Bible says, Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment, because you've been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel's not hidden from me, and now... Uh, o Ephraim, you commit harlotry, Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them, uh, with their flocks and herds. They shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have got begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Verse 8. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at beth Aven. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. 
Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth, and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, Yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you or of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. As we find in all of the prophets in the Old Testament, there are some very harsh truths which are also difficult for us to sometimes apply to our lives. But this is real-time application for us because these truths speak not only to the day that they were living in, they are a very timely word to the age that we're living in. The Bible indicates that the wages of sin is death, and of course that's speaking of eternal spiritual death and separation from God. But if you apply that to your relationship with God, you will find that sin is very detrimental in your day-to-day relationship with God. If you're a child of God and you're caught up in your own sin, it can cause you to miss a dynamic, fruit-producing life that God will bless. And I believe that sometimes people get so deep into their sin that God withdraws his blessing to the point that everything else in life falls apart. And if ever there were an example of this, Hosea chapter 5 is that example. So may we examine ourselves spiritually as we work our way through this passage and ask the Lord what he might want to teach us about our relationship with him and how that can be strengthened and how that can grow in the holiness of the Lord. The first truth I want to show you here is that the spiritual and political leaders influence the people to go deep into sin. The spiritual and political leaders influence the people to go deep into sin. Our focus here is on verse 1 through verse 7. God addresses Israel in verse 1, but he narrows the focus to two groups. The two groups that he brings to the forefront are the religious leaders who are identified here as the priests and the political leaders who are identified as the kings. Both groups led the people away from truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God. This is similar to what Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 1. He said, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and you've driven them away and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Now, we cannot overstate the negative impact of unholy and unethical leadership. Now, we see unethical leadership in a variety of forms in the world for a variety of reasons. If we think about it just for a moment in the context of even a secular setting, uh, we understand that sometimes unethical leadership is driven by personal greed, 
Uh, it might involve harming other people simply for the sake of personal gain, personal profit. And uh, research has shown that uh, sometimes leaders driven by those things are oppressive and abusive and manipulative and calculating. And sometimes uh, some of you have probably have worked in those type of settings and you could tell your own story on it. And unethical leadership goes even beyond their own behavior because the leadership forms the organizational goals and corrupt and unethical acts can affect the entire organization. So we need to understand just how serious it is when God references these priests and these kings in this situation. So what God did was he called the leaders to listen to what he had to say because he was going to hold them accountable. And God was basically saying to them, judgment is coming. There is a day of reckoning that's on the way. There's a day of accounting that is coming because the way that you have led my people. Now we find time and again in the Bible the story of what will happen to nations that fall into corrupt and ungodly leadership. In fact, we can look at this sort of as the history of mankind. Uh, there are many examples of nations that have departed uh, from obedience to God and later fell into the ruin of idolatry. Often it's tied somehow to uh, sexually immoral practices or excessive greed or neglecting the poor or taking advantage of orphans and widows. Uh, this was certainly the case for the Roman Empire where there was rampant sexual immorality, multiple marriages and divorces, child abuse at every turn, both physical and sexual, over-taxation, a growing national financial crisis, and all these things ultimately led to her downfall. Now, you don't have to be particularly spiritually astute to see the spiritual circumstances that the United States of America currently finds itself in, to see that we have some major weaknesses that all go back to spiritual issues. They might seem like economic issues. They might seem like political issues. They might seem like general societal issues. But every problem that we have in this country goes back to a spiritual issue. And when you hear people saying and uh, advocating for many of the things that people are talking about and advocating for, it is completely unbiblical in many regards, and it is at the heart of the spiritual issue of leadership that is not following after God. Now, he mentions here what they had done at Mizpah and Tabor uh, specifically that had become a major snare to them. Um, the reference to Mizpah was an ancient worship site east of the Jordan River. Uh, Tabor was a high place north of the Jezreel Valley. The people went there to worship, but they did not go there to worship the one true living God. They went to worship uh, false gods and to follow after idols. So these leaders that God references took them deep into sin, and God just blatantly says, I rebuke them all. Th that's the heart of what he's communicating here. It didn't matter if they had economic prosperity. It didn't matter, matter if they had political strength. If their religious worship was minus God, then they had nothing. It's the same way today. It doesn't matter if we have economic strength. It doesn't matter if we have political strength or power in the world. If God is not honored, there will be consequences. Now, obviously, we're not living in a theocracy. 
we have a little bit different situation. But this message is directly to those of us who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, who are part of the family of God. So before we start pointing fingers anywhere else, we need to look at our own hearts and ask ourselves, are we following after the word of God? Are we worshiping God as we should? In verse 3, it says that God saw all the sinful behavior that took place in Ephraim. In Ephraim, Baal was worshipped, and they took part in idolatrous prostitution. Uh, Ephraim was like Gomer. And when God said, Israel is not hidden from me, he meant it. And they were going to be wiped out because their actions were not hidden from God. In fact, they reached such a depth of, of sin that they would not return to the Lord and they did not know God. Now, isn't it interesting that sometimes people think that they're seeking God when they're really not seeking God at all? Did you know that you can have all the outward appearances of possibly seeking God, but yet your worship of the living God is superficial at best? It's surface level at best. If there's not a true heart change and a life surrender to the Holy Spirit, then it's superficial, and you might be in a similar situation as what they found themselves in. In verse 4, it says they do not know the Lord. Now, why is that? Because sin keeps people from a relationship with God. We can be so set in our sin and our rebellion that God just leaves us to ourselves. We may not notice it at first, but we're so deep in that when we do call on the Lord, maybe in a time of crisis, and we don't find him, we realize that it wasn't God who moved. It was we who moved away from God. So there's some warnings here specifically. In verse 5, he mentions the importance of watching out for pride. Beware of pride, the first part of verse why? Because God hates pride. The more that we're in line with God, the more we're going to hate pride. And that was particularly problematic among leaders. And we see that even today. This is probably the chief downfall of many leaders uh, who digress or uh, turn away from what God's will is for their lives or for those that they're leading, is that pride gets the best of them because of the position and the prominence and the attention and the adulation and all that goes along with that. Pride becomes a very deadly thing spiritually and also organizationally. Also, beware of stumbling, the second part of verse 5. The word for iniquity means God's people were involved in deep sin. And they stumbled and they fell as a result of it. Beware of searching and not finding. Verse 6, uh, they took animals to worship, to sacrifice them. It's possible to go through the motions of religion and not know God at all. This might be one of the most significant parts of the warning here when we think about the danger of going through the motions but yet not knowing God. Beware of seeking and yet not finding. Beware of dealing treacherously against the Lord. Verse 7, uh, when it speaks of uh, treacherously or dealing treacherously with the Lord, that basically means they were frauds. They were covering and hiding sin. They were not honest. And we can hide from other people who we are. We can even deceive ourselves at times. But we can never deceive God. God always knows 
where our heart is. And then he says in uh, the second part of verse 7, beware of bearing illegitimate children. Now, they literally did this through their immoral behavior, uh, but they did it spiritually also. They did not produce children who loved God and his word. They did not produce children who were committed to God, for they have begotten pagan children. Friends, that is a concern that ought to be heavy on all of us. Now, obviously, people get to a place where they make their own decisions, they make their own choices, they decide which path they're going to walk on. It has to be a personal step of commitment. But as much as it depends on us, we need to make sure that we're not raising pagan children. And it is a very concerning thing when we look at the landscape of the church and we see how many young people leave the church in mass. They leave the church in droves, and yet they've been raised around it. Where is the disconnect? I think there are a number of different reasons for that disconnect. But what we need to be praying for is that there would not be a disconnect, that we would in reality be living according to the gospel, that we would love God, we would teach our children to live according to the gospel, and also to love God, and then pray that what we've instilled in them will bear fruit. And we don't want to do anything that would bring the responsibility back to us that we had not made a good faith effort to give those children the opportunity to follow after the Lord. Also beware of being devoured by evil worship. Uh, the last part of verse 7, false religion is what would cause God ultimately to come against them. And we have to beware of live, living corrupt and sinful lives and not following and applying the word of God. Understand, God holds every individual accountable for their life, lives, and we want to be found faithful. Then the second part of this is focusing on verses 8 through 11. And in it, God warns his people what he will do in response to their sin. God warns his people what he will do in response to their sin. Now, what's being called for here is a meeting with God. Now, that's a very sobering thought that you might be summoned to a meeting with God. He was calling these people collectively to a meeting with him. And God told them to sound the alarm and to sound that alarm because a day of trouble was coming and a day of rebuke was coming. He mentions Gibeah, which was an important place about three miles to the north of Jerusalem. Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem. And then Bethaven, which is about 11 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And the point was the entirety of the land would come under the judgment of God. Uh, they would be facing the threat in the northern kingdom of Assyria. In the southern kingdom, Babylon. But if you look at this in a dual fulfillment out in the future, we also might be thinking toward the time of the great tribulation. And the judgments that would come would be a fitting fulfillment. Why? Because when people drift away from God, he can and will bring consequences. 
And those consequences are not merely intended to be punitive, although they are in part punitive in nature. Those consequences are intended to be restorative and to bring people back to him in order to get their attention. Now, it's interesting, according to verse 10, that the political leadership enlarged their own boundaries by moving the boundary markers in order to have more land. God said that he would pour out his wrath on them like water and he was going to put an end to all of it. But this is symbolic as well. They were not just shifting physical property lines. They were shifting spiritual lines that had been established by God. So envision it this way. They, they were changing the boundaries of what was right and what was wrong. They were shifting the boundaries between what was true and what was false. They were moving the lines from God to idols. And why are boundaries put up? For our own well-being, for our own safety. If you think about it from a physical standpoint, uh, fences can serve a purpose. Signs to warn you away from things can serve a purpose. A well-placed wall can serve a purpose. A manicured lawn or hedge can serve a purpose. And what does it say? This is where the line is. This is where my property begins, or this is where you need to be, and this is where you don't need to be. And I would say to you that spiritual boundaries are just as significant and important, and they're just as real. They just tend to be a little bit more difficult to see. Boundaries can define where you are with your soul and help to guard your soul and to maintain your life with God. Boundaries can show you what you're responsible for and help you define what you're not responsible for. A boundary can show you a line that you shouldn't cross. It can keep in the good and it can keep out the bad. And sometimes we have uh, very unclear boundaries in our lives and as a result of that we get ourselves in trouble but if you think about it the concept of boundary lines speak to the very nature of God himself is God not described in the Bible as a separate distinct being uh, uh, unlike any other he is self-sufficient he defines and takes responsibility for his own character and personality. He acts independently as he thinks and plans and allows and doesn't allow and likes or doesn't like something. And because God is separate from creation and from us, and because he is the one who is the arbiter of truth, and remember, truth is that which corresponds to reality, if God is the arbiter of truth and it's his character that defines truth and truth is that which corresponds to reality, then by his very nature, God is setting forth the boundaries that we're supposed to live by. And we've been made in his image and in his likeness and we're to take personal responsibility for our lives as well. Now, verse 11 indicates that God was bringing judgment because they were following human precepts rather than God's precepts. Human precepts rather than God's precepts. Now think about it today. What drives so many people? Personal experience that's been elevated above anything else. Their own ideas driven by their emotions, 
the criterion for right and wrong that is fluid, that they have defined according to what they want their actions to be. People try to justify themselves based on what they feel. And even many professing Christians make their decisions about right and wrong based on what they feel. And as long as we live on this side of heaven, we've got to deal with the fallen nature of our beings. And we need to be sure that we're not making our own experiences the determinative uh, piece of how we live our lives because God has already set that forth for us. So there's a summons for them. Um, I'm reminded of Isaiah 43 in verse 8 he says, where it says, uh, God says, summon my people to court. They have eyes, but they're blind. They have ears, but they're deaf. Summon the nations to come to the trial. Uh, which of their gods can predict the future? Which of them foretold what is happening right now? Let these gods bring in their witnesses to prove that they are right and to testify uh, to the truth of their words. If you read carefully, you will find some glaring sarcasm in the Scripture. It's like when God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You see, God summons his people in this setting, but we have to realize individually, every one of us is going to get summoned to be in the presence of a holy God. In fact, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Every single one of us has an appointment with God. We don't know when it is. God sets it. When he calls us, that's when it's going to be. But every single individual is going to appear before God. Let me tell you, friend, we want to be sure that we're ready for that appointment. We want to be sure that our lives are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we've been declared righteous in him, but not just declared righteous in him, but that we have been progressively sanctified because we've yielded and surrendered our lives to him along the way so that we stand before him will stand before him in his grace and his mercy, having believed what he told us was right and true, and coming into his presence by the blood of Christ. And then that leads me to the third and final point. God issues a warning of how the people could renew their relationship with him. God issues a warning of how the people could renew their relationship with him. Our attention turns now to verses 12 through 15. And there's some metaphors here describing God's relationship with his people. God says, first of all, that he would be like a moth. Uh, verse 12 and 13. Like a moth, uh, he would bring rot to them and cause them to have wounds that would not heal. God would be like the one who eats away and corrodes what they had. And they would not be blessed or increase if they stayed in the situation that they were in. He also says that God would be like a lion in verse 14. He would tear them to pieces like the moth. The lion brings destruction, but in a different way. So God is calling us not to submit ourselves to the moth or the lion, but instead to come to him in repentance and to be renewed. So how do we do that? Well, we've got to start by being honest with ourselves and honest with God. We ask questions like, uh, God, what am I doing in my life that is displeasing to you? 
And I promise you, anytime you ask God that, especially through the lens of his word, the Holy Spirit will always answer that question. Guaranteed, the Holy Spirit will show you in your life. And oftentimes it's just in that day-to-day devotional where we read something. We say, Lord, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's an area in my life that I need to grow to be more like Christ. Or Lord, help me there. I need to repent of that because that's something that is unhealthy and unholy. And then we need to ask positive questions as well, like, what do you want me to do that I'm not now doing? So is there some area of my life that you want me to be obedient in, but yet I'm not doing it now? And then we need to ask, am I more interested in pleasing you, God, or pleasing myself? Am I defining success or failure in my life by your standards or other people's standards? see here's the beauty of the gospel doesn't matter how far we've fallen doesn't matter how badly we've failed failure doesn't have to be final a fall doesn't have to be the end of the story a failure or a fall can be a comma not a period in your life's story and you may be tempted to think that there's something in your life that has brought you to the place that you're at the point of no return it's a permanent situation and i'm telling you that as long as you're breathing as long as you're willing to humble yourself in the sight of an almighty god and to see the beauty of the gospel and the hope of forgiveness and how god welcomes us back in just as the story of the prodigal son the father welcomed his son back in that's what god does for us then that's how We live a renewed relationship with God. And that's what God was saying to his people. Time and time again, Gomer did what she did, and yet he told Hosea, show her grace. Love her and be faithful even if she's not. Let's look now at verse 15. The scripture says, I'll return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. Let me give you some more points of application here. I've already kind of introduced this in the last point, but let me me give you some thoughts here that might be helpful. Start, if you want to have a renewed relationship with God, God, start by yielding yourself completely to God in every area of your life. I think the watchword of the Christian life is surrender. And it's a daily surrender. It's a once and for all surrender when we come to him in faith, but it is a daily surrender. Yield yourself completely to God. You do that by honestly assessing where you are. And then the next point of application here is repent of any known sin. Ask God to forgive your sins, your failures, your compromises. The blood of Jesus was poured out on the cross for many for the forgiveness of sins. He died for you. And the promise of Scripture in 1 John 1 and verse 9 is if you will confess your sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And as you do this, seek the presence of God. Seek the presence of God. When the Scripture talks about the presence of God, It's literally what verse 15 is referencing here. It's seeking the face of God. To come before his face. To be in his presence. And the seeking is the conscious effort to 
come before God at whatever cost, yielding yourself up to Him and knowing Him through prayer and the Word. So I hope that your takeaway tonight from Hosea chapter 5 is, first of all, to see the ugliness of sin, to see the rebellion that it brings, to see the brokenness and the collateral damage that comes along with it, and to see all of that as a loud warning, just as God said through Hosea, for the people to be warned, as a loud warning in your life in the life of your family. And as you hear that loud warning, know that there's a meeting that is coming with God in the future. And it'd be a lot better to start meeting with Him right now so that when you get to the future, and it's that once and for all meeting, it would just be a continuation of you having sought the Lord's face day by day. And then you'll understand in fullness what this grace is all about. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, again, we're grateful for this message in Hosea, but if we take these truths as uh, just information, they, they won't be very helpful to us. I pray that we would apply them to our hearts and our lives. And if there's sin that we need to repent of, that we'll repent of it, that we'll yield ourselves up completely to you, and that we will seek your face in every area of our lives. Thank you, God, for a love that is everlasting. And I pray that we would live in light of this great love that you've given to us. We pray blessings on the remainder of uh, our time this evening and in the week ahead. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's going to conclude our service together. And uh, just a reminder that our Sprouts ministry is back open. And we'll be open again this Sunday. We're going to be sending out some information again about that. And I uh, look forward to seeing a lot of you in person on Sunday as well. Lord bless you, and I hope you have a good remainder of your week.